This morning we were cooking breakfast over the uh, stove and we had all the good stuff going for New Year's Day. And my daughter, Evelyn, said something about what the uh, family's resolutions are this year. I think she said, so what, what is our resolution this year? Does anybody have a New Year's resolution? And Brenda said, well, her resolution is to work less and to organize pictures this year. Is that right, hon? That was your resolution. And every year, families, people, individuals make New Year's resolutions. And every year, most of those resolutions go unfulfilled. We make them and we break them. We want to read more, treat loved ones better, spend more time with kids, less time on the phone, less time on the computer, lose weight, eat healthy, work less, work more, stop smoking, go to bed earlier, get up earlier, start going to church, go to the gym, go to the library, go to the lake, the river, the mountains, etc., etc. We all make these resolutions at the beginning, and because we're creatures of habit, oftentimes those uh, resolutions that we make are hard to break, or the old habits are hard to break, and the new resolutions are hard to adopt. And it'd be typical, because it's New Year's Day, to preach on new beginnings, to preach on resolutions, a day that humanity sees as a fresh start. And when I was thinking about this, I, I put on that, uh, that movie clip of Forrest Gump. I don't know if probably everybody in here has seen Forrest Gump at least once, I would think. And there's a scene on New Year's Eve where they're in this bar and uh, Forrest Gump is, is with Lieutenant Dan. And these two, uh, I want to make sure I word this properly. I wrote it down so I didn't say it wrong. Uh, these two, the couple of women who appear to be fairly regular in those types of environments. We'll just put it that way. That's the, the type of women that appeared to be fairly regular in those types of environments. And the ball dropped and the place is crowded and the ball dropped. And one of the women gazed off in the night, and she said, and I quote, don't you just love New Year's? You get to start all over. Everybody gets a second chance. And of course, at that moment, Forrest is thinking about Jenny and what she was doing in that moment in time. So it's true that New Year's Day marks a time when fresh starts can be made and new beginnings can lead to a clear horizon for us. But in all reality, um, every day could be a new day. Every day could be a new beginning. Every day could be a day that we resolve to do something differently or do something better. Um, we don't have to wait till a specific day in our calendar year to become a better version of ourselves. And I was reminded of this passage in Joshua 24. And in Joshua 24, it's the end of Joshua's tenure with the Israelites, and he is uh, renewing the covenant at a place called Shechem. And he's talking about how. God uh, gave them Abraham, and God gave them Jacob, and Isaac and Esau, or Isaac and uh, gave, uh, gave Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, and then he brought the fathers, you know, out of Egypt, and then um, they cried to the Lord, and, and they parted the Red Sea, and after he kind of tells them everything that God had done for them, he says in verse 14, Jeremiah, or Joshua 24, 14 to 15, he says, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Now, this, the, the three words that, that struck me when I read this this time, I've read this passage several times, but the one that struck me the most was, choose this day. He says, choose this day. And there, it is statistically likely this was not New Year's Day. They've got one out of 365 or 166 if it's a leap year. I don't know what calendar they're on at the time. That, that it was not New Year's Day. And he says, choose this day. Choose today whom you will serve. And as I pondered that, that idea, that, that number one resolution that we can make in their life, one that would cover all the bases of the resolutions that I spoke of earlier, the, the uh, read more, treat my loved ones better, spend more time with my kids, my spouse, less time on the phone or computer, lose weight, eat healthy, work less, work more, stop smoking, go to bed earlier, get out of bed earlier, start going to church, the gym, the library, the lake, the river, the mountains, etc., etc. When I thought of one resolution that each one of us could make that would basically cover all of those resolutions that we would make individually, it came down to part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Now, most of you have read the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to be thinking about how long it would have taken Jesus to, to preach the entire sermon because uh, it may surprise you the length of time it took. Uh, we'll, I'll share that nugget later, if you can call it a nugget. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, this is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now I recognize the context in this passage is talking about anxiety. It's talking about, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. God knows you need these things. He's going to take care of them. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of itself, of its own. So the one thing that you should do is seek first, primarily, number one, numero uno, His kingdom and His righteousness. That's what Jesus is saying in this sermon. Now, when I look at this passage and I look at the context of it, and I say, well, you know, we will do better in life if we seek God, and, and it just kind of goes without saying but there are passages throughout the entire Bible that God is, is, is uh, encouraging us. He's encouraging you young men. He's encouraging young lady. He's encouraging every single person in this congregation today to seek, number one, His kingdom and His righteousness. That's what God is telling us to seek. And if you look throughout the Scriptures, we see it in Ecclesiastes. We were talking about this recently in our men's Bible study we were talking about this over Christmas with Brenda's, part of Brenda's family. And Solomon explored all these things throughout life. And at the end, at the very end of his exploration of life, everything you can imagine that he sought after, he says, now all has been heard and here is the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of mankind after exploring everything is to fear God and keep His commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, it says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Not some of your heart and some of your soul, but all of your heart and all of your soul. That is what Deuteronomy tells us. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your might. Again, in Joshua chapter 22, he says, Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in His ways and keep His commandments and hold fast to Him and serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. We see this constant throughout Scripture. This is just a couple of verses, but we see this whole idea in Scripture is that love God with everything you've got. How about that for a resolution? In Micah chapter 6, I'm going to quote 6 through 8, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my sin, my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We have all these resolutions that I read a minute ago, and it seems to me that if we just cover seek ye first His kingdom and His righteousness, all of these little details that we talk about in life are going to fall under that seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus told His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. There's this daily walk that God is encouraging us, that Jesus is encouraging us to walk with Him on a daily basis. And when I look at these, I go, okay, if I'm going to do a start at the beginning of 2023, which I'm so grateful that you decided to get up this morning and, and, and get ready for fellowship together, get in the car and drive over here to sit and listen to a message about God's Word. One person asked me about the time when the service starts. Are we going to do a regular New Year's Day service? And I said, yes, we are. And he says, she said, what a great way to start out the new year is to come fellowship, is to come hear the Word of God. But if I'm looking at every one of us, maybe have said, I'm going to, I'm going to, have, a, I'm going to have a resolution this year. I'm going to be better at this this year. I was thinking about on the way to church today. I was thinking about the sermon, and it popped into my head going, you know, I think I'm going to really focus on, and I started focusing on, some other things other than what the sermon was about. It was really strange. And then I had to like click back into it and go, no, what do I need to focus on this year? Seek ye first His kingdom and His righteousness. And so this morning, I think the great place to start, and we're going to go probably for the next six to ten weeks, I'm guessing, is we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. How many have read the Sermon on the Mount? Almost all of us, I'm guessing. The Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And in Luke chapter 6, 8, 11, 14, and 16. It's broken up throughout the Gospel of Luke. It's put together in one straight teaching in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So a majority of our teaching today is going to come from Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 7. And so when I... When I thought about, okay, we're going to talk on the Sermon on the Mount because I think the Sermon on the Mount is a good place for us to kind of start off a new year and to think about, you know, what Jesus said, what Jesus taught. I thought, I've got to understand the Sermon on the Mount. I've got to understand when, where, why, what, and all that good stuff about the Sermon on the Mount, which gets taught about in churches all over the place. 
So when was the teaching? Now, if you look in the Gospel of Matthew, and you see in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus uh, goes to John the Baptist, and, and John the Baptist is, uh, is there in the Jordan River. He baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River, and when he comes up out of the water, he's led into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And after that 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, he is, he is sitting there, standing there, whatever, and the devil comes to him and tempts him. So he tempts him three times, and three times, which is another sermon topic, we won't rabbit trail it, three times he quotes Scripture. One of the times, I believe, Satan quoted Scripture, the devil quoted Scripture, but three times Jesus' defense, his sword, his battle, was he quoted the Word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. And after that, he goes, after the temptation took place, he goes and he chose his disciples. Has anybody been watching that show, The Chosen? I'm sure many of you have, The Chosen. It's a really cool uh, oh, movie series, TV series on, on the disciples, the apostles that he chose. So he, chose, he chooses the disciples, he goes and heals some people, and then he begins his sermon. So that's the, 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 when was the teaching? That was about the time frame. Right after he chose his apostles, he teaches the Sermon on the Mount, what we have in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Where was the teaching? What's it called? Wake up! Wake up! <laughs> Wake up! What's it called? Sermon on the Mount. It was taught on a mountain, I think. Or the plains. Some say it's a flat area. Yeah. So, northern Israel. The Mount of Beatitudes is a hill in northern Israel on the Chorazin Plateau. It is a spot where Jesus is believed to have delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Does it matter if it's a mountain, flat? I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But according to my research, it was in northern Israel, the Mount of Beatitudes in northern Israel on the Chorazin Plateau. To whom was it, to whom was it taught? Okay? The, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Who was Jesus teaching? Raise your hand if it was 2,500 people, 10,000 people. 25,000 people. Raise your hand if it was just the disciples. Raise your hand if you're paying attention. Very good. Okay. So, that's the question. Who was it taught to? What was this body of teaching taught to? And I came up with two different answers. And so, let's just look and see what the Scriptures say. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Taught who? The crowds or the disciples? The disciples. Now go forward a little bit to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. This is what I would call more of an introductory sermon to a topic that's going to happen over the next several, couple of months. Because I want to understand the basis of what we're going to be studying over the next couple of months. So, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, he had just, got, he had just finished with the, the, the subtitle, Build Your House on the Rock. And then in verse 20, it says, And when Jesus finished, saying, uh, finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So that's the Matthew version of the Sermon on the Mount, that he taught his disciples and then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it clearly says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, 
the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So the crowds, it appears to have been listening to his teaching. Go to uh, Luke chapter 6. That is the other account we have of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's spread, like I said, about five or six different places throughout the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 17... Am I in the right chapter here? I think I am. Verse 17, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and on and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, whom he, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, so it sounds like his disciples. So I could, in theory, I feel like I could say he was teaching his disciples and the crowds were also a part of the teaching. Is that okay? Is that getting into a doctrinal dispute on anything here? No? Okay. So, it's clear that he's teaching his disciples. How long was the teaching? Here's the fun one. So, I've read a lot of commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, and some say this took place, Matthew 5 and 7, Matthew 5 through 7, even though it's put together in one long sermon that was taught over a period of several days, and because Luke is broken up into five different sections of the Sermon on the Mount, it just proves that it was broken up into several different days. And one of the commentators that I read said the reason why it was broken up into seven different, several different days is because there was so much information that Jesus was given, was giving to his people, that they couldn't, they couldn't process it all. And so they had, to, they had to do this in stages. And I can just picture Jesus saying at the end of chapter 5 or whatever, you know, after the salt, he's like, you know what? You guys are spent. Your eyes are rolling back in your head. You, you, you're, you're, you're staring at me glossy-eyed. Let's take a break. Let's go fishing. Let's get something to eat. Let's come back tomorrow morning, and I've got some more life nuggets for you. Any idea how long it would have taken Jesus to preach what we have recorded in Matthew 5 through 7? If you think it was over an hour long, raise your hand. Two hours long. Three hours long. So I read it, and I know I read fast, Rick. I get that but I I intentionally read it slowly. I intentionally took it, and I kept telling myself while I was reading in my head, slow down. How would Jesus have taught here? How would he have said, you are the salt of the earth? No. He would have said, you are the salt of the earth. And I just tried to picture how Jesus would have taught this. And I got my phone out, and I put it on the table, and I pushed start, and I began to read. Matthew 5 through 7. It took me 10 minutes and 29 seconds. Not reading fast. So let's just say that I was reading twice as fast as the teaching. That would be 21 minutes. Or 20 minutes and 58 seconds. 21 minutes long of teaching. Now, I'm not saying this to say, no, Jesus taught it all at one sitting. I'm just saying there is so much information here, I can understand why the scholars believe that it was broken up into two or three days. Because when I was starting, I was watching The Chosen with Brenda, Jesus comes up to Matthew and he goes, I've got it. I know my intro. Blessed are the meek. Well, they will inherit.
And he goes, okay, and he writes it down. And then later on, Matthew goes, Jesus, what's this gouge out your eye? I mean, everybody's going to be blind. And Jesus stopped and explained it to him. So going back, we don't know what the teaching was and how long, or how the teaching went. We don't understand if Jesus was pausing and saying, hold on a second, this is what this means. We just know that Matthew 5 through 7, it's a Sermon on the Mount, could have been taught in one setting. It could have been taught over multiple of days. Now, one scholar wrote this about the Sermon on the Mount. And now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew shows us Jesus instructing his disciples in the message which was his and which they were to take men. They were to take two men. In Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, this becomes even clearer. In Luke, the Sermon on the Mount follows immediately after what we might call the official choosing of the Twelve. For that reason, one great scholar called the Sermon on the Mount the ordination addressed to the Twelve, just as a young minister has his task set out before him, and when he is called to his first charge, so the twelve received from Jesus their ordination address before they went out to their task. It is for that reason that other scholars have given other titles to the Sermon on the Mount. It has been called the Compendium of Christ's Doctrine, the Magna Carta of the Kingdom, the Manifesto of the King. All are agreed that in the Sermon on the Mount, we have the essence of the teaching of Jesus to the inner circle of His chosen men. So this particular theologian says this body of teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the essence of teaching of Jesus to the inner circle of His chosen men. It is, what does it mean to be my follower? What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? That's what this Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto of the king. What does that have to do with us? Well, I think I just answered it. What does it look like to be a Christian? You guys heard that song in Vacation Bible School B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand upon the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Who's heard that song? You've all heard that song? No? Well, now you have. You've never heard it sung better. B-I-B-L-E is an acronym for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. And God is giving, Jesus is giving His disciples basic instructions before leaving earth. Basic instructions on how to be a follower of God. Go with me to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When I look at this list of Beatitudes, which is really Matthew 5, verse 3 through Matthew 5, verse 10. 11 and 12, I think, are just a, 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 in a, an addendum to or an explanation or in, not an improvement, but more teaching on verse 10. Um, when I look at that, my natural question is going to be, what does it mean to be blessed? What is blessed? And I mean, you see that oftentimes in, uh, with, with Christian professing people that may have been taught a different understanding of the word blessed. Um, they're standing next to their new Ferrari and they're like, I'm so blessed. They're standing next to a pile of money and they're like, I'm so blessed. And I'm not knocking anything, I'm just telling you that the, the definition that I understand blessed is, is a little bit different. And in, in Matthew chapter 5, when he gives all of these blessings, blessed are these, blessed are these, blessed are these. Um, I want to wor- look at that word blessed, and this is from one of my favorite theologians, William Barclay, and, uh, and I did look it up as well in the, the Strong's Concordance. The word blessed, which is used in each of the Beatitudes, is a very special word. It is the Greek word makarios, which means fortunate, well-off, happy, Karios is the word which specially describes the gods. In Christianity, there is a godlike joy. The meaning of makarios can best be seen from one particular usage of it. The Greeks always called the island of Cyprus He Makaria, which means the happy isle. And they did so because they believed that Cyprus was so lovely, so rich, and so fertile an island that a man would never need to go beyond its coastline to find the perfectly happy life. It had such a climate, such flowers and fruits and trees, such minerals, such natural resources, that it contained within itself all the materials for perfect happiness. Makarios then describes that joy which has its secret within itself, that joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained, that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and the changes of life, The English word happiness gives its own cause away. It contains the root hap, which means chance. Human happiness is something which is dependent on the Christian blessedness, I'm sorry, which is dependent on the chances and the changes of life, which something which life may give and which life may also destroy. The Christian blessedness is completely untouchable and unsaleable. No one, said Jesus, will take your joy from you in John 16, verse 22. The Beatitudes speak of that joy which seeks us through our pain, that joy 
which sorrow and loss and pain and grief and powerless to touch, that joy which shrines through tears and which nothing in life or death can take away. The world can win its joys and the world can equally well lose its joys. A change in fortune, a collapse in health, the failure of a plan, the disappointment of an ambition, even a change in the weather can take away the fickle joy the world can give. But the Christian has the serene and untouchable joy which comes from walking forever in the company and in the presence of Jesus Christ. The greatness of the Beatitudes is that they are not wistful glimpses of some future beauty. They are not even golden promises of some distant joy. They are triumphant shouts of bliss for a permanent joy that nothing in the world can ever take away. When we look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus start off with the Beatitudes. As we're going to go through chapters 5 and 6 and 7, and look at all the details of Jesus on that mountainside, talking to His disciples, talking to the crowds, and breaking it up in one day, or three days, or five days, is, is insignificant to me how long it took. What's significant to me is what it says. And when He's saying, blessed is He who does this, blessed is He who does this, blessed is He who does that, and that's the happiness and the blessings that come from knowing who Jesus is. That is the blessings and the joy and the happiness that accompanies His followers. So when we look at and ask the question, who is this for? What does this have to do with me? There are eight progressive steps in the Beatitudes. Eight progressive steps in the Beatitudes which mankind through Jesus reaches the higher altitudes of our individual spiritual lives. There are eight steps that you see in verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Eight steps that Jesus is saying, well off, fortunate, happy, joyful, peaceful, is the one who is this. And every single one of these beatitudes, every single one of these blessings, is something that each and every single one of us can chase, can achieve, can go after. Verse 3, humility. Verse 4, penitence. Verse 5, meekness. Verse 6, spiritual hunger. Verse 7, mercifulness. Verse 8, inward purity. Verse 9, peacemaking. Verse 10, sacrificial suffering. There is nothing in this first list in the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 10, that we cannot go after, that we cannot achieve, and that we will not experience through Christ. And what Jesus is saying is you want to be happy, you want to be joyful, you want to cover over all your resolutions, be meek, be humble, repent, hunger for righteousness, hunger for the kingdom of God. Be merciful, have inward purity, be a peacemaker, and be okay with being persecuted for Jesus' sake. And so next week and the week after and the week after, however long it takes, we're going to go through the Beatitudes. We're going to go through verse 3 through verse 10 or 12. And then we're going to continue to follow on and we're going to look at what is it the salt and the light. What does it mean He came to fulfill the law? What does He mean about anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love for enemies, giving to the needy, the Lord's prayer, fasting, lay up treasures in heaven, 
not being anxious, judging other people, asking, and it's given the golden rule, a tree and its fruit. Jesus saying about the false prophets, I never knew you, and then finally build your house on the rock. We can see that in Matthew 5-7, through and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper as you go into And Jesus is saying, are you a follower of me? I want to teach you, disciples, here's how you are a follower of me. This is what you are to teach other people. And it's something that you can attain. It is something you can experience. So when I think about all these resolutions that we make as followers of Christ, I would say the best resolution for this church body, individual, is to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. I'm not talking about, let's see if we can turn this into a thousand-member church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, let's see if we can become so well. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is individually, every single one of us, asking ourselves, how do I experience the blessings that are in being poor in spirit? How do I experience the blessings for being one who mourns? How do I experience the blessings by being meek? How do I experience the blessings by hungering and thirsting for righteousness? How do I experience the blessings by being merciful? How do I experience the blessings by being pure in heart? How do I experience the blessings of being a peacemaker? And how do I experience the blessings of being persecuted for righteousness' sake? That's what this says. That's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is looking at His people and is saying, you want to be blessed? You want to be happy? You want to be well off? Here's the roadmap. I imagine it took longer than 10 minutes and 29 seconds. Next week, that's what we're going to look at, the Beatitudes in detail. And my goal for this church body is that we are all inspired at some level to seek these blessings. Maybe you're already the most humble person that you know and you'll tell everybody. Maybe, maybe you're already extremely meek, but maybe you're not a peacemaker. Maybe you're not pure in heart. Maybe you're not. I would venture to say that every one of us could probably take one or two of these blessings and work on it. would be my guess. We're going to do communion now as a church body, and my prayer before communion starts is that if there's something holding you back from being a, a genuine, sold-out follower of Christ, if you're holding on something out of the water, which is what many of the soldiers did, they held their sword out of the water when they were baptized before they went into war, some would hold their wallet out of the water, metaphorically speaking. Some would hold their addiction out of the water, metaphorically speaking. I mean, there's all these things that people would hold out of the water when they gave their life to Christ. So I would, I would beg you to say, God, is there something that I held out of the water? Is there something I kept? Are you my number one? And if he's not, you'll know it. You know it. You don't need to talk to a preacher or a counselor. You already know. 
But before you take the communion, my prayer is that we each pray for that. To help have God reveal it to us. Who has communion this morning? Ronaldo?